0: How old is that coffee? A week. I was about to say, it's Monday, so <laughs> how old is no, coffee?
1: I, I doubt it's a week old. Probably from probably. Thursday, probably just from Friday. Okay. Maybe Thursday.
0: That's still kind of rough. How you doing today, Chris?
1: I am. Um, suffering from working in my woodworking garage area, cleaning up all the dust without wearing uh, an inhaler. People, especially when you study human biology, you should know better than to be Mm. sucking dust into your lungs with no respiratory devices. You human biologists should know better.
0: I'm in a similar situation on two fronts. One, we're getting a house ready to sell, which means a massive amount of cleaning and dust and cat hair and all that. And then two, using my meat smoker. I should really wear a mask. And I don't always do that. <laughs> the amount of smoke inhalation is really bad. Yeah. But the results are totally worth it in the end.
1: Well, the, the, the hobby that I have of downing uh, allergy meds and then going crazy in my lawn and garden and garage all weekend is very emotionally satisfying, uh, but my lungs and allergies on Monday. Last week I was laying under my desk. I was so bad off. I, I realized that was not just due to eating so much candy at midnight on Easter and, and not being able to sleep, but because I'd mowed my front and my back w- lawn without wearing a mask and
0: Yeah, not the best, not the best. So our guest today was the HBA Phyllis Evelyn Award recipient for Best Student Poster. And her name is Jelena Jankovic, uh, and she's a grad student at Notre Dame.
1: Let's read the title. It was called Forced Migration and Chronic Stress, a Study of Traumatic Experiences, Mental Health, and Cortisol Among Refugees in Serbia. And I think that's pretty self-explanatory. (laughs) <laughs>
0: We're gonna have her unpack it a bit
1: though. We're gonna have her unpack it a bit. She she looked at forced migration and chronic stress and she measured cortisol and perceived stress and the impact use the impact event scale revised and the refugee health screener um and and fingernail cortisol, which I'm we now have a couple examples in the Notre Dame lab. They seem mm-hmm. to be. Using a lot of fingernail court, and they're also they're, among
0: refugees as well, but in okay, different areas. Yeah. Hello. Hello. How are, How are you?
2: Great. How are you?
0: Good. Thank you so much for joining us. While you're in the field, what time is it there for you right now?
2: Right now it's five thirty-six p.m.
0: Five thirty-six. So just just about dinner time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm approaching lunchtime. <laughs> Now tell us tell
1: us where you are
2: uh, right now?
1: Yeah, for the podcast listeners, where are you?
2: I'm in Belgrade, Serbia currently.
1: And what house are you in?
2: <laughs> my house.
1: Right, on. <laughs> your home with your family?
2: Yeah, my my home with my husband. Ah. Nice.
0: That's going to be nice that fieldwork means going home to family for you.
2: Yeah, it's amazing. Actually, uh I have I was lucky enough to do my work in my home country where my family and my friends are so I can enjoy in my work and at the same time enjoy my family and my friends.
0: Which means you get a lot of support emotional support and uh, during fieldwork that's a really wonderful situation for you
2: it is it is but at the same time while I'm in the United States so uh, that is something that is probably the most important part of Mm. me being so persistent and being able to continue with my uh, academic journey and being so far away from my family Mm. is having that support while we are miles and miles uh, apart
0: Well, you kind of introed really well into the first question we always ask everyone on this podcast, talking about your academic journey. Maybe tell us a little bit more about that, of how you got into anthropology, how you came to the United States for a graduate degree, and why you decided to pursue it.
2: So I came to the United States six years ago. Uh, I had a friend who pursued his degree in international peace studies at the Kroc Institute at Notre Dame University, and he told me about Notre Dame University, which is a university that is not well known in Serbia. Actually, nobody knows about uh, Notre Dame. And he told me, uh, knowing me and my background and my interests, he told me that this program in international peace study would be a great fit for me and uh, what I want to do in my life. So I decided to apply for the first time in my life to uh, a university in the United States. And I got accepted and decided to come and <laughs> take my degree in international peace studies, but what happened in my last semester, I took two classes in anthropology, and I simply fell in love like my mind was completely blown away, and this is something that I realized at a time four years ago that I want to do for the rest of my life since it complemented my be- my background and my interests, but I was uh, thinking do I want to do it in the United States and pursue my PhD degree or go back to Europe. But a professor who was teaching those two classes convinced me that the best way to do it is to stay in the United States and to do my PhD there uh, since my department is advocating for integrative approach, which I really, really love in anthropology and uh, working with all four subfields. Um, while you're trying to understand and study a certain phenomenon. Who was that professor? Uh, it was Professor Rahul Oka. Yeah, he was, so I took two classes with with him and uh, he was really, really persistent in in convincing me to stay and, and pursue my degree. And I was resisting uh, for a couple of months, but then I was like, okay, I'll apply to Notre Dame and I'll try uh, my luck and, I got accepted again <laughs> and decided to continue with my 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 uh, study and and uh, research, uh, but this time in anthropology.
1: So, what led you to peace studies? What was your life before that?
2: So, I did a similar master's uh, program in uh, Belgrade, Serbia. It was about nonviolent strategies and methods. And I worked for the government and NGOs. Uh, so practically my professional and academic background fit really well with uh, international peace studies. But in a way, I did not get answers to certain questions. Mm-hmm. And t- anthropology classes, I realized that I can answer uh, and fill those uh, uh, holes in my knowledge, practically, and be more working closely with people that I want to learn more about. And that is something that practically gave me a completely different perspective to the same phenomena that I was researching and studying from uh, peace studies uh, view.
1: Well, just, just to sort of, without going from when you were a tadpole all the way through undergrad. I know personally that I don't know anything about the school system in Serbia. Uh, so just how how do they compare? Like sort of what, if you were going to give a brief overview of that part of your life, what led you to, to the master's degree and all that jazz?
2: So in my second year, uh, during my undergrad studies, I knew that I want to be a professor. Mm and practically that is my my end goal. I can see myself doing that, and I realized that to be a professor, you need uh, to have certain degrees, but I waited for my um, PhD degree because I wasn't sure about the field and what field I want to study and be in. Uh, because my undergraduate studies were a combination of psychology, sociology, medicine, and my master degree is about peace studies, nonviolent conflicts, uh, nonviolent resistance to conflict. So it was like a mixture of everything, and I couldn't find myself and see myself in a certain field. But when I took the anthropology classes, I was like, yeah, this is the answer to my pursuit for the field and uh, job that I want to do for the rest of my life and profession I want to be in.
0: Uh, So as we talked about right before we brought you on, you won the Phyllis Eveleth Award this past year at the HPA conference for your poster. Congratulations. Congrats. It was a wonder. I was one of the judges, so maybe I shouldn't out myself (laughs) as that. But there were many judges, so it's not just me. Um, They all agreed. And the poster was titled Forced Migration and Chronic Stress, a Study of Traumatic Experiences, Mental Health and Cortisol Among Refugees in Serbia. I was wondering if you could just kind of take us through what that study was about and what some of the key findings were.
2: So what I uh, wanted to Practically study and learn and understand more is the relationship between traumatic experiences, exposure to stress, physiology and uh, health and in my uh, Second field season, uh, I worked in an asylum center in Serbia and trying to collect data to be able to uh, Explain that relationship. So I worked with 72 people 72 individuals collecting survey interview data uh, and trying to understand How those experiences on their way to journey uh, affect their mental health and physiology once they reach their uh, destination Mm. and the key findings which wasn't my first uh, uh, hypothesis to say uh, Mm. that way was that refugees who experienced longer journeys tend to have an exhibited lower court which goes and confirms previous findings about uh, the relationship between exposure to chronic stress Mm. and uh, reduced court levels cortisol oh. levels. Because talking with those 272 individuals, so I was the only one practically collecting fingernails, talking with refugees, collecting survey data, of course, with the uh, help uh, of my um, assistant, and talking with uh, people and, and who are living in that asylum center in Serbia, I realized that they experienced different kinds of uh, trauma from physical such as violence or nutritional deprivation to uh, psychological because they all used smugglers to be able to practically illegally cross multiple borders to reach Serbia. And we're talking about refugees who are coming from uh, certain parts of Northern Africa and Middle East. So predominantly uh, people are from Afghanistan, Syria, Pakistan, Ghana, Uganda... I, I even talked with people who came from China and India. Of course, there is a small number of people from those countries, but predominantly Syrians, uh, people from Afghanistan and Pakistan. Mm-hmm. So I was practically triggered by, um, the, uh, I wanted to learn about, why they decided of course i know that they are coming from more uh, affected countries but Mm -hmm. how they and why they decided to come from those parts and uh, cross multiple countries on their way to safety and end up in serbia Um, so i realized that of course serbia is not their final destination because it is a small country, we're still not part of the uh, European Union. Um, there is not many economic economic and social uh, um, opportunities to um, establish in a way or reestablish a new life. So they want to continue their journey uh, further north, but because of the whole EU politics and closed borders, they were... In a way, stuck. They, they get got stuck in Serbia and in those asylum centers. So the range uh, of their journeys was from two months to three, four years. They crossed, uh, as I as I mentioned, uh, multiple countries from Turkey, Bulgaria, Romania, Greece, Italy, to come to Serbia. And the time of their Practically staying in Serbia, it also varies from, uh, let's say, a couple of weeks to two years. Mm. And during that time, they're still trying to continue their journey and reach their final destination, which is typically Germany or uh, France or uh, Norway.
0: So one of the findings in this, uh, in your work, was that women seem to be experiencing greater symptoms of PTSD and, you know, other pretty negative impacts compared to men. And I was wondering, thoughts on that? Uh, Why was it that women were experiencing things maybe more acutely uh, than men were?
2: So talking with with female refugees, I realized that they have been exposed more to sexual traumatic experiences. Uh, So if they traveled alone, they have been exposed to higher risk of being sexually exploited or attacked by smugglers or other people in the group. So that's one of the reasons why they uh, have higher perceived stress compared to men. Also, uh, traveling with children as a family puts more pressure and stress on women because they have to take care of kids while men are taking care of some other things on their way to safety and security. Mm-hmm. Um, so those two main reasons may affect or might affect uh, higher perceived stress among women compared to men.
0: Uh, and so, I mean, refugee camps cannot be an easy place to conduct research or these asylums. And so how did you actually get started and how long did it take for you to really gain the trust for the refugees to talk to you? Uh, as a vulnerable population, it, it can't possibly be an easy thing to play, to do.
2: The main practical institution uh, working with refugees, government institution, is the commissariat for refugees and migration. So to be able to even enter any asylum center in Serbia, you have to get the permission from the mm. commissariat. So I had to first establish that kind of relationship and explain that besides interview and survey data, I want to collect Fingernails. Um, mm-hmm. That was a challenge. <laughs> After I gained the trust of that main institution, I entered the asylum center, and I was lucky enough that I got introduced to uh, um, community leaders. Hmm. in uh, In that asylum center that I w- uh, that I talked with about my research my goals, I was completely open, transparent uh, about every detail uh, hmm. and also open uh, to answer any questions so bit by bit, uh, I spent time with people living in that asylum center, and through time practically and explanations and conversations they realized that i'm not there uh, to just collect data and leave and never think about them again but i was coming uh back and forth and uh um, went multiple times to that asylum center so um, i have been actually building that relationship over two years with people there uh, since i have participants who uh, i have been working with two years ago a year ago and hopefully this time um, again so practically establishing that kind of cohort study longitudinal data and also adding new participants uh, and Practically all participants is helping me to uh, uh, recruit more participants uh, in my studies. So you have to be really open, transparent, and talk uh, and explain uh, and spend time and show them that you're not there just to take something from them and then leave and forget.
1: With that many different nationalities, how do you navigate the different languages?
2: So, I'm lucky enough that uh, I have a, an assistant who speaks six different languages. Mm. Uh, <laughs> yes, that's, that's something really weird. Because he, so, he speaks Farsi, he speaks English, he speaks Serbian, Pashto, Urdu and kurdish language uh so he's the one and the main person who is helping me navigate different languages uh with translation but many of refugees residing in that asylum center actually speak english so not always i need his translation but yes when it comes to surveys because some questions mm-hmm. can be slightly complicated so they require more, more explanations than just simple
0: reading. That's impressive. That's great. What a find to have a research assistant so skilled in different languages.
1: So I think this is interesting to people. We're negotiating all these languages. We're in this uh, awkward setting, and fingernails is not something people are used to having scientists doing. This is sort of like in the realm of witchcraft or things people are afraid they're going to use to steal their soul And I'm not kidding. These are some folk beliefs around the world still. So what does this procedure look like? What do you do?
2: So practically, uh, before I even start to collect any kind of data, I talk about my research. I'm, I'm telling them what kind of data I will be collecting. So I typically do first fingernails. I'll clip all 10 fingernails and tell them that this will uh, tell us about their levels of stress and how that might affect their health and physiology. So, practically, I did not uh, encounter any resistance because I, before I even collected and decided to collect fingernails, I talked with refugees, and hair seemed more problematic than fingernails. Mm. Um, so that's why that's one of the reasons why I decided to go and collect fingernails uh, instead of hair. Uh, but in my field season three, I also collected dried blood spots, which was even easier than collecting fingernails. I don't know uh, uh, why, and I I don't have a full explanation. But as I uh, said, being really transparent and uh, open and uh, explain the entire procedure, how it will look like. Somehow uh, they were really, really willing to to uh, give those samples.
1: What is the procedure? Do you have your own fingernail clippers? Yeah. Do they clip their own nails? What's- no.
2: So practically the procedure is uh, I have my own fingernail, clipper, fingernail clippers. Uh, I have gloves. Uh, I have Um, plastic bags so and then a piece of uh, paper where fingernails would land Mm. Uh, so I would be the only one clipping because we had to and we wanted to have a standardized procedure so I had to be the only person clipping those those nails although some of refugees wanted to do, do that themselves especially Men, it was really weird to them that a female would clip their n- fingernails, but after explanation, answering their questions, they understood why I needed to be that person and the only person clipping the- those um, nails.
1: Do they have to clean under them and all that stuff first, or?
2: Yes, but they all had clean fingernails, so I. I practically did not have to tell anyone, can you please clean your nails so that I can clip them? Yeah, I did not have that. that And what about
1: polish or anything? Does that make a difference?
2: Yeah, I, yes. Uh, So I asked female uh, participants to uh, take off their nail polish so that I can clip their fingernails. Yes.
1: Just a little methodological insights Mm -hmm. for our listeners and me.
0: The first (laughs) Uh, right, going back to where I was going <laughs> before the awesome, methodological a logical bit. As uh, you mentioned one of the key things to getting participants on board was you keep coming back and you're not just collecting data and leaving. Uh, and I'm wondering what kind of, I guess, your long-term application and goal is for like giving back to these participants. What do you hope you can do that might help them or be applied to either this refugee population or other refugee populations around the world?
2: So my hope is that I can, in a way, influence some policies, solutions, and responses to refugee crises or migration or, uh, or displacement uh, policies that regulates those issues and questions. Uh, of course, when I tell them, I typically tell them that that is my goal, but that I cannot promise that I can make any difference, but I'll do my best to um, in a way help those policymakers to make right decisions and in a way improve their living conditions. And for example, what I realized, working uh, in uh, that asylum center and practically worked in two asylum centers, one close to Belgrade and one uh, 100 kilometers away from Belgrade, the capital. I realized that they really, really uh, lack psychosocial support. So Mm -hmm. that is one of the things that I recommended to uh, the government institution that, uh, that need for psychosocial support due to their traumatic experiences and stress they encountered and have been exposed to is really something that they need. So they're still working on, uh, they have some kind of psychosocial support, but outside of the Asylum Center, uh, it would be great if they um, can establish something like that in the Asylum Center, but Mm -hmm. it's still not there. But I'm hoping that my work can actually advocate and um, tell the story about uh, current needs and how they can improve uh, those people's
0: lives while, while they are waiting for some permanent solutions. And so, as we said earlier, well, one, that's amazing. And it's really wonderful that, one, you're honest that it doesn't necessarily mean you will be able to make policy change. Uh, I think it's great that you're upfront with that. But two, it's also wonderful that you are doing it in hopes that we can improve conditions in these asylums. Uh, but as we said earlier, you're in Serbia right now. And so I might be making an assumption, but my guess is what you're doing now is building off what we saw in that poster. And we were wondering if maybe you could tell us what's on the horizon, how long are you going to be in Serbia for now, and and what are you doing?
2: So, yes, you're right, Kira. So my uh, work in Serbia is building off my previous two field seasons, but this time I am trying, besides collecting biological and survey uh, data and talking with refugees, what uh, the poster is telling just one side of my story. The other side of the story is daily lives and how refugees uh, are spending their uh, time in in and outside the asylum center. And what I want to learn uh, is how those daily mundane activities that we are not paying attention to, very moment we are not capable of uh, exercising and practicing them, such as taking a shower. You don't think about that, how that is important to you the very moment you lose the ability to practice that. So I I want to learn how they're spending their daily activities, how they're doing that, in a way, how they're coping with those daily stressors of life in the asylum center. So, that's another layer that, that I'm adding to my research and in this uh, uh, season. And I'll be probably here for five, six months, mm-hmm. um, trying to spend more time doing more participant observation and explain differences. What I'm interested in are those individual differences uh, in physiology, health, and daily lives, and why some refugees do better than others. Uh, But just having survey and biomarker data would not give me answers to some of the questions that I have. So I want to be part of their daily lives and learn uh, how inability to practice certain activities, for example, cooking, I know that they are not uh, uh, able to cook in that asylum center, the food is provided and cooked, but that is something that is causing uh, really, really big stress. Because food is different, right? It's not the same uh, right. and they're not used to, to that uh, type of food. So what they're doing, they're uh, uh, having like small places where they can go and buy their food or cook their food. But you have to navigate the entire space, the entire system, structural conditions to be able to do a simple thing. And that is uh, uh, to cook your favorite meal. Right. Uh, and those things are definitely affecting their lives physiology and long term health outcomes mm-hmm. so i want to learn more about that and see how those uh, experiences on their way uh, to safety and how uh, daily stressors while they're waiting for their permanent solution mm-hmm. is a- are affecting uh, their entire life and physiology their identity values and worldviews in a way
1: wow that's a, that's going to be amazing and we look forward to hearing more the amazing admirable really well integrated mixed method qualitative quantitative so kudos to you and a really important humanitarian effort so thank you
0: yes.
2: thank you so much grace i really appreciate that and my yes i love that integrative approach in my research uh because having Uh, just numbers cannot explain something that is more complex and invisible to those numbers. But just talking about with people without having some qualitative, quantitative uh, support is in a way, for me, having that mixed method approach and having a combination of qualitative and quantitative data just enriches the whole study and helps me to, to better explain the phenomenon that I want to
1: study. Well, I think your cooking example makes your case because Kara and I both cook.
0: Mm. And <laughs> Me too. <laughs> we,
1: and, okay. So when we're deprived of food, the opportunity to express ourselves that way or opportunities to eat what it is that we like to eat or are used to eating or are forced to eat substandard food or it's made by someone else or that's weird you know, all those things I can, you know, and then extrapolate from all the other creature comforts that we create for ourselves in our homes.
2: From my own experience, so coming to the United States in Serbia, in the morning, I would make my Serbian coffee and enjoy my Serbian coffee and have some time for me to reflect and plan my day. But coming to the United States and realizing that I cannot make my Serbian coffee and, uh, exercise those 3045 minutes cause a lot of stress mm-hmm. my own experience I realized how much those small things that you don't pay attention to can cause uh, and make a huge difference in your life
1: well that segues perfectly into our last <laughs> question which is how is it that you maintain balance in your life one I want to know what the difference with Serbian coffee is and the rest and and how in general you you keep yourself happy while doing research.
2: So thanks to some stores in Chicago, I'm able to to buy my Serbian coffee. <laughs> I'm able to continue making my Serbian coffee while I'm in the United States. And you're more than welcome to come to South Bend and have Serbian coffee with me. Or next time when I see you, I'll definitely bring my Serbian coffee to the next HBA meeting and uh, make uh, for you Serbian coffee but the balance, I, I'm a really social person and I love to spend time with my friends uh, in the United States and in Serbia. So having long, long, long hours of coffee and uh, uh, conversation with my friends, it's something that uh, helps me to, to cope and uh, move forward and deal with some things on my way and problems. Um, Also, I love to watch The Walking Dead. I'm a huge fan. The Walking Dead and Game of Thrones. That's like...
0: No spoilers. Haven't (laughs) watched it. No spoilers. All right. (laughs) (laughs) I still did not see the last season. Okay, good. No spoilers. (laughs) I've been shouting that all day today because everyone wants to ruin it. Yeah. No, (laughs) I
2: I cannot because I did not see it. Uh, I, I like biking and traveling. So... I like to explore new places, new people, new cultures and, uh, and learn about different parts of this wonderful world.
0: Mm. Well, that sounds great and then how can people get a hold of you? I'm not sure what social media that you use or if you've got a website or email you're willing to share.
2: So <laughs> I'm in a way Uh, And also, I I still like that in-person kind of uh, Mm. interactions. I have a Facebook account, but people are are forcing me to have my Twitter account. And I I promise I'll have one. (laughs) So Facebook and also my department's website, we all have uh, our names listed. So people can find me there and learn more about my research and also find my uh, email address and email me as, and ask me questions. But I promise that I'll have my Twitter account soon.
1: <laughs> well, that's okay. I, I appreciate in-person, t- tweeting is, is great, but Era um, mm-hmm. will soon be in South Bend and my, yes. uh, my family's from Indianapolis. So when I go home, I'm gonna drive mm-hmm. on up to South Bend and we'll have Definitely. some Serbian coffee together.
2: Yes. I, I hold you in that promise. And
0: here, <laughs> congrats uh,
2: uh, for coming to to our wonderful department.
0: And- thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Anyway, Yana, thank you so much again for joining us. Congrats again on getting the Ovalis Award. It was a fantastic poster. Uh, I remember being blown away by it. Chris, how can people get a hold of you?
1: Uh, you can get a hold of me at chris underscore ly on Twitter. on the twitters,
0: on the on the twitters. twitters. and for me it's at kara akabak um like this podcast rate this podcast share this podcast uh and thank you all for listening
1: and it's been called the sausage of science in case you're wondering and uh, <laughs> we're we're affiliated <laughs> with the human bio association and thank you to caroline owens as always for a wonderful production we'll talk to everyone in two weeks